G'day everyone. It's great to see you all. Wasn't it great to hear Andreas and Savitri's story before? Isn't it wonderful that every one of us has that story of how God's Word has worked in us and convicted us of the truth of the Gospel uh, and then uh, we've come to know Jesus and then it changes us and that's what uh, this passage today is actually about as well. But I'm going to pray for us and pray that God's Word would do that work in us today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that each one of us has come to know the Lord Jesus. And Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us so wonderfully and clearly through him in your word. And so we pray that as we turn to your word now, you might help us to set aside the things that might distract us and instead concentrate on understanding it correctly, but more than that, living by it. In Jesus' name, Amen. One of my favourite things is when I hear people from outside our church say how they are struck by the way they see, see people in the church caring for one another. Uh, sometimes I have these conversations with people where they say, I don't like the church, but I like your church. And, and what they, I don't think it's actually just our church. I think what it is, is people don't like the, the, the public institution of the church, but they meet people in their local church and they impress them in, in some way. Uh, and you'd be amazed how many times I hear people, you know, looking in from the outside, people coming along for a short time, uh, and they often, what strikes them more than anything else is the way they just see people loving one another within the church. That's the thing that, that, that strikes them as different. When you're in it, you sometimes can't see it, and we're sometimes better at finding faults. But for people who don't know Jesus, the genuine fellowship of Christians is something amazing is something very different to anything they experience in our world. It's incredible to them. Even just the little things of they hear that, that someone cooks meals for someone else when they're having a tough time or, or, or drops a meal off when, when they've just had a child or, or the fact that people even give one another a call when they're not around. It's those little things. Many people in our world do not have anything like that. Our world is not a loving place. So even a tiny bit of love, even a tiny bit of what we call fellowship really stands out to people. So I love it when people see that and they comment on it and you would be amazed how many times it happens. Uh, of course, I then try and say, well, you can be a part of that. You can experience that. The reason people are like that is because they've come to know Jesus and you can come to know Jesus too. Those, though, are the great stories. But there are also the hard conversations there's also the hard stories. There are times when people are not as positive about the church. And the really sad comments are when once in a while you're talking to someone and they've been hurt by a Christian or they've been hurt, uh, they've had a bad experience of church, either here or, or, or somewhere else, uh, and that is now stopping them hearing about Jesus. They're not open to hearing the gospel because of that. And often the issue, real or perceived, is hypocrisy. Often the issue is that, that Christians have not practiced what they've preached, that Christians have not lived by what they've said they believed in and what they claimed. Now, at that point, of course, we want to gently say to them, I'm sorry, Christians will let you down. We're all sinners too. Uh, we still get things wrong. So in the end, look to Jesus. He's the only true non-hypocrite. But even so, sometimes people's views are very hard to change. But that is the reality, isn't it? I'm sure you've experienced exactly the same thing. That reality of where our, the church, whether our church or any church, is this incredible witness to our world, but at other times, it can be a terrible witness to Jesus. That is the reality. Here is the thing, that is not a new 21st century reality. 
It has been the reality of the church from the very beginning and it will actually be the reality until Christ returns. And that's what we see in today's passage in Acts. The beauty of the church at its best in the first part and then sadly the sadness of Christians at our worst in the second part. We're starting with the good though. Come with me to that little part we read at the end of chapter 4 and I've called it the beauty of the church at its best. In many ways, this passage sits alongside the description we saw at the end of chapter 2. But we only skipped over it because when we looked at chapter 2, we focused at the story of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to flick back now in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 from uh, verse 41. Because I want us to actually look at that and today's passage together. Uh, And go, we won't read it all, but just look at verses 41 and 42 of Acts chapter 2. If you need a Bible, put up your hand and uh, Michael will get you one. Uh, but verses 41 and 42 it says so those who accepted his message were baptized and that day about 3,000 people were added to them and then and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to the prayers isn't that just a wonderful picture of what happens when people get the gospel when people become Christians firstly we become a part of this fellowship of believers Uh, And then together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, what are the things they devote themselves to? Look there, the apostles' teaching. For us, that's studying the Scriptures. They had the apostles in the flesh, if you like. We have the New Testament. It says they devote themselves to the prayers at the end there, praying for one another and praying for the world. But they also were devoted to fellowship. That is, they were devoted to meeting together. They shared their lives. It's this picture of them sharing meals, sharing every aspect of life together. They opened their homes to one another. Now, now passages like this one are not meant to be a list of rules for church. You're not meant to then tick off, well, how many people have I had in my home for a meal this week? Though it's not a bad question to ask. What, What it is, is just a picture of people gripped by the gospel. That's what it is. It's it's a picture of people who've come to know Jesus and and what that looks like. It it will not look exactly the same for us. We've got to bring it forward to our situation. We don't live together in Jerusalem where where we we have this religious order to life, where we go to the temple morning and, and afternoon. We can't meet daily like they did. But even so, what we can be is devoted to the fellowship. Devoted to the fellowship. We can make meeting with our brothers and sisters in Christ and sharing our lives the the centre of who we are. That's what happens when you become a Christian. You become devoted to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You become a part of a new family. See, we we can open our homes to one another. I know I'm like a broken record on this, but far too many modern Christians value the church far too little. I think it is the sin of modern evangelical Christians to value the church too little. And I'm not talking about the denomination. I just mean the gathered assembly of the people of God, the family. People gripped by the gospel are devoted to the fellowship. But now turn back to chapter 4, because this next picture of the early church focuses on two very special parts of that devotion, unity and generosity. So come to chapter 4 and look from verse 32. It says, Now the large group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, And no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. I think there's the most wonderful phrase. They were of one heart and mind. They were united in their knowledge and love of Jesus. 
so they didn't let other things divide them. I could actually stop at this point and preach a whole sermon on those couple of words, on, on showing our unity uh, of heart and mind. But I won't because the passage focuses especially on how it showed itself in one area, which is generosity. So look there again. It says, No one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. Then down at verse 34, look there. It says, For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed for each person's basic needs. Now, now at first read, as you read that, and some people go in this direction, it sounds like a form of communism. It, it sounds like everyone sold everything and the apostles held everything and, and it's like a communist state almost, uh, where no one owns everything. It clearly wasn't that because people kept owning houses uh, they kept being able to meet in people's houses right through the, the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, and in the next part we read, which is the sorry tale, Peter actually says to Ananias, you didn't have to sell your house. You, you chose to do it. So it wasn't like the early church was a hippie commune or something like that. But what it was, was a community of radical love and radical generosity. The key line, I think, is there in verse 32. It says, no one said that any of his possessions was his own. See, the world says to you, that's your money. You've worked hard for it. That's your house. Pull up the drawbridge. That's your car. But the Christian appreciates it's all a gift of God. We hang lightly to the things of this world. Our treasure is where? What does Jesus say? It's in heaven. And so we use these things that God has given us for God's service. Our grip should be loose on our worldly assets. Our idea of ownership should be very loose. Uh, all that I have is actually for the benefit of God and his people. Now, at this very early moment, the generosity was focused on meeting each other's physical needs. As the New Testament goes on and as the church grew and became more aware of their mission to reach the world, uh, that generosity gets focused on all sorts of areas, on support for gospel work, on, on support for their own church, on, on supporting other churches in need. But all of it is with that same spirit of generosity. The point is people gripped by the gospel are radically generous. It's funny, I've heard people teach this passage many times and the first thing they always say, almost universally, is don't worry, we're not called to all sell our houses. I just think that's really sad. It's, it's true, it's right, but it's like we're scared that we might be as full on as these early Christians. It's like we're scared that we might be as radical as these early Christians. Yes, this is not a command, but we are called to have that same spirit of generosity. So we need to ask ourselves, how do I use my house? I said before, it's not a law, but I want to ask you, how many of your brothers and sisters have you had into your home in the last month? All of us, not just those who think they have some gift of hospitality. How do you use your house? Is it your castle or is it something to be shared with your brothers and sisters in Christ? In our giving, how do I work out how to be generous? There's an old joke that the last part of a Christian to be converted is our hip pocket. Uh, it's not a joke. Money is the clearest sign into our heart. Almost invariably, when Jesus wants to talk about the state of a person's heart in his parables, what's the topic of the parable? Money, wealth and possessions. 
almost invariably. Read, read one of the Gospels, you'll see it. Jesus says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. No person can worship both God and money. So we need to ask, do I cling to my money, giving from my leftovers? Or does my love for Jesus drive me to be radically generous? We read from Malachi before, and Malachi was saying to, to the, the Jews, these first disciples before Jesus came, you are meant to tithe under the law, you're meant to give 10%. But Malachi, giving the words of God, was condemning them for their lack of generosity. You don't do what the law commands. But do you see here for these Christians how knowing Jesus has taken them beyond the law? They didn't say, oh great, Jesus died for me, I don't have to give 10% anymore. Now I can give 5%, now I can give 2%, now I can give 1%. That's what a Pharisee does, but not someone who knows the love of Jesus. They said, we've come to know Jesus. All I own is a gift of God. Now I want to use it for his glory. It's always hard for me to talk on this topic because I'm paid through the generosity of church members. But as your pastor, I have to. It's my job. And can I encourage you to consider your heart in this matter? Don't let God's word, don't let the example of the early church pass you by unmoved. Christians, by definition, are radically generous. If you want help in being faithful with your money and your possessions, take one of the, the giving brochures we have at the back of church. Do the, it's a Bible study on a, on a godly attitude to wealth. That's what that is. Take it and have a look. It's not just giving you the church bank details. Uh, it's designed to help you work out how to be godly in this area. It's very, very hard to get examples of generosity because almost by definition, godly people will not shout from the rooftop what they're giving. So it's actually very hard to get examples uh, of generosity. I remember when I finished university as a young Christian and I started work and I had a pretty good paying job and I was there throwing my 50 bucks in the plate every week and actually a Christian brother had the courage to challenge me and to say, Phil, you, you're working as a lawyer. Uh, have you thought about what it is to be generous? Now you can question whether he should have been watching what I was putting in the plate or not, but... He was standing next to me. But the point is, it's actually hard to get examples of radical generosity goes well. Our world can't understand it. The idea that you would give anything is beyond the, the... But people who know Jesus are radically generous. But here in this passage, we're given a wonderful, specific example of generosity in Barnabas. Look at verse 36. It says, Joseph, a Levite and a Cypriot by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas goes on to become a major figure in Acts. Uh, he's a missionary alongside Paul. But what you see here is from the very beginning, he was a man worth following because he was someone with that spirit of generosity that only comes from knowing the generosity of Jesus. Well, there's the church at its best. Sometimes people read these descriptions uh, and they have a romantic idea of the early church. They say, why can't the modern church be like that? Well, to that person, I do feel like saying, well, if you want to sell your house and put the money in the box at the back, you can be like the early church. But it's funny how sometimes we want other people to be like that rather than ourselves. But besides that, Acts shows us the church had its issues from the very beginning and especially, sadly, the issue of hypocrisy. So the second part, Christians at their worst in chapter 5. So after these wonderful opening chapters with the church growing by thousands almost overnight and these wonderful pictures of the early church, this story of Ananias and Sapphira just totally stands out, 
doesn't it? It, it, it mirrors, do you remember in Joshua, in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, how they go into the promised land and everything's going great and then you have the sin of Achan who, who steals things that God said they were not to take. And, and it's almost like uh, it's a mirror image of that moment where everything is going wonderfully and then you're brought back down to earth. And I think it's intentionally put after that wonderful example of Barnabas to just stand out even more. So what happens? Look with me, it tells us there in verse 1, this man and his wife, they were in on it together, it was a joint operation. They sold their field, but they kept a portion of their money for themselves. They came, they laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. They wanted to look like Barnabas. The, the apostles had started calling Barnabas the son of encouragement. They thought, Let's, we want to be like Barnabas. We want people to, to think we're generous like that. But they kept a bit on the side. Now, what's wrong with that? Peter makes the point in verse 4, look down there, he says, wasn't it yours while you possessed it and after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? So the problem wasn't that they kept a bit for themselves, the problem seems to have been that they lied about it. Look from verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds from the field? And then why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. See, the problem was that it seems Ananias had made a commitment to God in front of the church to give it all, and he didn't just renege on that commitment, he lied about it. He was a hypocrite. He wanted the kudos. He wanted the acclaim. He wanted the credit. Look at how generous they are. They're like Barnabas when actually he wasn't. He was lying to his brothers and sisters in Christ, and he was lying to God. And so God strikes Ananias down. That's what happened here. God judged him. And just to prove the point of their lying and hypocrisy, we're told his wife came in three hours later, who knows where she was, and Peter asked her, is this what you received for that field you sold? Now at that point, she has the chance to tell the truth. She's actually got the chance to say, do you know what? We decided we needed to keep some money. And that, that, that would have been it, but she doesn't. She doubles down. She says, yeah, too right, aren't we? Great, we gave you all the money. And so she dies, just like her husband. It's actually a shocking moment, isn't it? It grates on us in the book of Acts. And lots of people struggle with this. They say, how could God do this? I read one commentator who said, oh, it mustn't have been God. It must have been Peter. Because he couldn't handle the fact that it was God that did. No, it's God that does it. And it's not Peter that judges them. This is a direct act of God. But we only struggle with this, I think, because we don't really grasp the seriousness of sin. We don't really believe Romans 6.23 when it says the wages of sin is death. We don't really believe that all sin is an affront to God and worthy of his judgment. You see, the actual question to ask here is not why did God do this to Ananias and Sapphira, the right question to ask is, why did God, God not do that to Phil? Why is God so merciful to all the hypocrites who've come after Ananias and Sapphira, including, truth be told, sometimes me and perhaps you? So let's think about it. Why does God act so decisively against this sin at, at this point in the growth of his church? And there's a couple of reasons. I think there might be more, but I'm going to share a couple. The first is, it seems that from the very beginning, God wanted his people to understand the gravity of sin and especially 
the seriousness of Christian hypocrisy. See, we are saved by grace, not by works. Savitri shared uh, Ephesians 2.8 was one of the verses she read. It's, why, it's actually one of the verses I read in becoming a Christian. Uh, it's a verse I read once a month. I, I read Ephesians chapter 2 once a month to remind me of the gospel. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. We're saved by the death of Jesus that pays for our sin, but we are saved to live for God. Ephesians 2 goes on to verse 10 and talks about saved to do these good works that God has prepared for us to do. And this is here as a warning to us not to tolerate sin in our lives, especially not to be a hypocrite who puffs themselves up and, and pretends we're righteous when actually our hearts are very hard. It's interesting in these wonderful descriptions of the early church in Acts that we're looking at, both times there's a funny word that jumps out. Funny because we don't think of it as a good thing and it's in the midst of a passage that's meant to be all good. Uh, back in chapter 2 where I started to us today, amidst all the talk of them praising God and sharing and devoting their lives to one another, it also says fear came over everyone. And then here, look at verse 11, after this incident, it says, Then great fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things. See, joy and praise are the marks of the church. How could they not be if we know the wonder of God's love for us in Christ? But healthy fear of the Lord is also a mark of the Christian and a mark of a healthy church. See, God is loving and merciful. God is gracious and kind. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But God is not to be trifled with. God is not to be mocked and taken for granted. That's why we confess our sin to God when we meet together, rather than hide it. God wants to forgive us. Why would we hide our sin from him when he can see it anyway? Beware the sin of hypocrisy. Now, I'm not talking about that struggle we all have with sin where we struggle and sometimes fail and seek God's forgiveness and thank him for the forgiveness we have in Jesus. I'm talking about the sin of hypocrisy. Beware if you are putting on a show. Beware if you are putting on a mask, a mask of godliness. Beware if you're putting on a show when the truth of your heart is far from the show. God hates the hypocrisy of the person who, who acts all generous but is actually full of greed. God hates the hypocrisy of the person who acts like a hero on Sunday at church, but at home is cold and hard-hearted with their family. And I don't think it's a coincidence that hypocrisy and money seem to go hand in hand in the Bible. Because as I said before, how we use our money is perhaps the clearest snapshot into our heart. But remember, if we are in danger of being a hypocrite, if you heard this story and you thought, oh, there's some of Ananias or Sapphira in me. Remember, the answer is then not to run away from God. The answer is to turn back to Jesus because God's grace is sufficient even for our hypocrisy. Can I implore you, if you have hidden sin in your life, confess it to God. Take a hold of the forgiveness you have in Christ. Confess it to God. Ask for his help. Deal with it. You can hide things from me. You can put on a show for your brothers and sisters but you cannot do it from God. And that is what Ananias and Sapphira forgot. So this story is here to show us the seriousness of sin and related to that, and secondly, it's here, I think, to show us what God wants for his church, which is holiness. 
See, the church is useless if we are not holy. I hope you've seen this in our studies in the Sermon on the Mount. I hope you're all up to that passage about how we're meant to be salt and we're meant to be light and we're meant to be a city on a hill. Jesus calls on us to be distinct. We're meant to stand out like a light on the hill or like salt in a meal and it is our holiness that's meant to stand out. We're meant to be different to the world because we do not tolerate sin in our lives in that negative sense and because of our love in that positive sense. See, if we're going to be effective in reaching our world for Christ, holiness matters. That's why Jesus and Paul in the New Testament both teach about the importance of church discipline, of the need for sometimes for Christians to challenge one another, to rebuke one another, to point out sin in each other's lives. The New Testament is clear, we have to care about sin. We always do it out of love, we always do it with grace, always aware of the potential log in our own eye. That idea of church discipline is a very, very hard topic. And if you want to think some more about it, I did a seminar for more college recently on it, and I'm sure you can find it online. I couldn't just before this sermon to give you the link, but I'm sure you can find it online. Uh, but God was showing us right from the start of the church, sin is serious. Sin needs to be dealt with, not tolerated. But as we close, I want to come back to the positive picture that we started with. What happens when people come to know Jesus? What happens when people are gripped by the gospel? Well, we become devoted to one another. We become devoted to the fellowship and it gives us a unity of heart and a unity of mind and a spirit of generosity that is just a wonderful thing to see. That is what I pray people will see when they look in at our church. So I pray people will say, the people there are different there's something about them. They are unified in the gospel. They are generous and they cannot help loving one another. And I pray that people would say of us, quoting our passage, now the large group of those who believed were of one heart and one mind and no one said that any of his possessions was his own. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for, on the one hand, this wonderful picture of the church. But also we thank you for the challenge of the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And we pray that we might be people who know Jesus and so are devoted to the fellowship. We pray that we might be people who cannot help but share our homes and our lives with one another. People who sacrificially love one another. People who are radically generous in our use of all that you've given us. But help us to learn from the lesson of Ananias and Sapphira not to fall into the trap of hypocrisy. Help us not to put on a show of godliness. Help us to repent when at times we put on a mask. But Father, we thank you that even in our hypocrisy, we can turn to Jesus and find forgiveness through his death. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.